Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. We all have been in the situation where we are sweating it out, hoping Santa's elves get our packages here on time. Worry no more. Our friends at Seattle Shirt Company have all of us in mind. They have an excellent selection of NFL and NBA jerseys for everyone on your list. And they are doing their part in keeping their staff employed during these tough times. Please do yours in supporting local businesses. Not only is shipping free on everything, but this week only, for all of our customers, we have an amazing promotion. 50% off all Seahawks merchandise. Seattle Shirt Company have it all. Hats, jerseys, hoodies, and more. All the stars from yesterday to today are included. From LeBron James back to Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Walter Payton, Mike Ditka, Deion Sanders, Jerry Rice, and many more. Have you seen the latest Seattle Kraken NHL gear? Just head to seattleshirt.com and enter the code BELIEVE, that's capital B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for 50% off all Seahawks merchandise. Shipping is always free. Seattle Shirt Company, helping you get ready for the holidays. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. It was neat to see you play, and it's fun to talk to you all these years later because you played with a lot of joy and you played with passion. And I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, you know, I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school, trying to mimic all your moves. I think there were a lot of kids who looked at Dan Dickow and said, Dan Dickow can play at this level, I can play at this level. Welcome to another episode of The ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, on the Believe Podcast Network. Today's guest, an expert as a broadcaster. I know we usually have broadcasters, executives, coaches, or players. Kevin Calabro is our guest, a phenomenal broadcaster on both the television and the radio side. Glad to have him today. Kevin, how's life in your world? Life is good, Dan. No complaints. Uh, Family's doing great. We're living here in the great Northwest, up here in North Central Washington, Chelan, Washington, home of the Chelan High School Goats. Famous alma mater one, Joe Harris, one of the great shooters in all the world. Joe Harris hails from Chelan. Yeah, He's our claim. You know Joe. a great part of the Northwest, that is for sure. And Joe Harris uh, signed a monster of a free agent deal. And if there are any high school student athletes out there listening to the podcast, <laughs> which I know there are, if that's not a lesson in the importance of shooting, uh, you yeah. need to look up that contract and see what he did as a young kid because it's working out well for him. Yeah, he really improved his his craft. You know, he was drafted by the Cavaliers, and uh, it, it just kind of when I watched him play, he obviously had athleticism enough to play at a big time level uh, at Virginia uh, for Tony. 
um, and was the Gatorade High School Player of the Year here in Chelan. But when I saw him play just uh, for a few minutes there with Cavaliers in his rookie and second year, it was obvious that he had to, he had to develop a three-point shot, a consistent three-point shot, where he wasn't going to stick in the league. He just did not have the strength or athleticism at that point. And so, like you say, he's a guy that works very hard at his craft. His dad was a very successful high school coach. And uh, you can tell that it definitely paid dividends. So, yeah, work uh, on that ability to cast it off, man, particularly in the league today, Dan. It's amazing how that three-point shot is just – it is the thing. I never thought it would be, but it is the thing now. It is absolutely the thing that uh, a lot of young players kind of uh, separate themselves on early. But you mentioned you're in Chelan. You're in the middle of the Pacific Northwest. Your name – and your voice is synonymous with two of the great teams in the region. Most recently, the Portland Trailblazers as their play-by-play guy before you decided to take a step away. But you became absolutely a staple of the Pacific Northwest sports scene with your calling of the Seattle Supersonics. How did that come about to be the, the, the voice of the Sonics? Well, I was hired by Bob Witsit, who was the uh, Gen General Manager of the uh, Seattle Supersonics in 87. And Bob and I went back to our days as young pups in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was uh, an Assistant General Manager with the Indiana Pacers, and I was working for the Pacers flagship station in Indianapolis at the time, WIBC. And I was doing pre- and post-game shows. I'd fill in and do some PA work and stuff like that. And I was doing high school basketball. I did Purdue basketball for a year. I did minor league hockey. Uh, so by the age of 25, I was at Butler University, and I worked at Butler for, for four years as a student on their, on their uh, student radio station doing broadcasts of, of college basketball. So I, w- I like to think that I had you know, a pretty good resume at that point by the time I was 25. Bob had taken a job as the assistant general manager to Joe Axelson, an old name back in the, in the, uh, in the NBA with the Kansas City Kings. So this goes back to about 83, before their move to Sacramento in 85. They had changed radio stations and they had an opening. And uh, I called Bob late in, the, uh, late in the preseason, as a matter of fact. And he says, yeah, we'd like to hire you, uh, you know, based on the stuff that he had heard in, in Indianapolis, the fact that I was young and dumb and cheap, <laughs> and, you know, and would sign a one-year contract. And uh, I had it was a great opportunity because I had an opportunity to go in there and do television and radio. We did a simulcast in Kansas City. So, uh, again, they were trying to do it as cheaply as they possibly could. And I worked with a guy by the name of Easy Ed McCulley out of St. Louis University, who's a Hall of Famer. His number is hanging up there in the Boston Garden. Uh, Easy Ed was a very self-deprecating man, very humble guy, who, who, who claimed that his claim to fame was being the guy that was traded, uh, the rights traded from Boston to St. Louis in exchange for the rights to Bill Russell in 1956. Uh, and uh, so, and the rest is history. But uh, so Easy Ed would say, yeah, I was responsible for, for Russell getting to Boston. But uh, that was my, kind of my upbringing uh, in, the, in the NBA was with the, the Kansas City Kings and with Bob Whitson as the general manager. And as things go, they changed radio stations and TV stations the year after I was there. I had a one-year contract, and the stations actually were hiring the announcers rather than the team. 
And because it looked like the team was on their way out of town to Sacramento, it was explained to me that they couldn't keep me on board because at the station they were going to, they already had a guy on staff that was already paid, a guy by the name of Kevin Harlan, who I don't know if anybody's heard of Harlan, but obviously we have. But so Harlan was there, and Harlan picked it up, and he was also doing the Chiefs at the time, so his plate was full. So I was without a team, came back to Indianapolis. Uh, as it turned out, it worked out great because my first child was on the way, and he was born in Indianapolis, my hometown, and my parents were there. So it was great that they, they got to see and be with the baby. And then we were off again to do college basketball at Missouri for a year, and then I got hired in Seattle to actually do a morning show. I was doing the morning show for about three months in 87 before management came to us and said, we're going to let all you people go. Uh, we're changing formats. So you, <laughs> again, it was, you know, this is kind of the nature of the business of, of radio and television. Sometimes it's kind of like being an assistant coach or a scout. Uh, you just never know. You got to be nomadic a little bit when you begin your, your process and your career. So um, once again, we were kind of looking around. Bob was in Seattle, and the team had been purchased by Barry Ackerley a couple of years before that. And Barry had bought a radio station, KJR, in Seattle. And Barry wanted a, a new approach to the broadcast. Uh, Bob Blackburn, the original voice of the Sonics, had been there since 67. And Bob had logged in 21, 22 years with the Sonics, uh, actually 20 years when I got there in 87. And so for the first couple of years, Bob and I actually did the radio broadcast and we alternated quarters for two years. And then my third year with the club, they decided to make me the, the main announcer and they decided to go back to the simulcast again, which is something that we did in Kansas City. And this time I hired Rick Barry as our color analyst. So I was working with the great Rick Barry for a year and was, had a great time with Rick. He taught me a lot about the game and about broadcasting. And then Rick decided he was going to leave. And then they brought in a guy by the name of John McLeod, who did great stuff coaching uh, college at Oklahoma. And then with the Phoenix Suns, had those great teams with Alvin Adams and Phoenix. And then had the, some really good Dallas teams as well with Roy Tarpley and Derek and Brad and, and that group. And, but was fired and then joined us. And John McLeod, Dan, was with us for – four preseason games before the New York Knicks fired Al Bianchi, who ironically was the first Sonics head coach, and the Knicks hired John McLeod. So we were, we were without a color announcer because <laughs> McLeod got the job in New York to do the Knicks. So Bob Blackburn, God bless him, he came back, and Bob actually did color on a broadcast for two more years until we then decided to, to, to go out and um, – uh, hire some some other guys, and and of course Marcus Johnson was to come along shortly after that, and then Marcus was with us for about six years on the broadcast, and we had some great times in the mid '90s with those teams of Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and Detlef Shrimp and Percy Hawkins and the great Sam Perkins and the wild George Carl and that great coaching staff of Dwayne Casey and Tim Gergerich and of course Terry Stotts who's done just great work in Portland. So yeah, that's that that in, in a in a not so short nutshell is how I got to uh, how I got to Seattle. What a circuitous route! I know you and I have had a chance <laughs> yeah. to work on uh, Pac-12 Network games 
on the TV. Yeah. We've worked on Westwood One radio games on the NCAA tournament in between your Sonics and your Blazers run. And I, I, I knew a lot of your history, but I didn't realize just how much weaving uh, it took for you to get your big break with the Sonics. And that, that was a, a very interesting to hear. When I say TV and radio side, and most people don't realize there's such a difference between the two, in particular right. somebody like yourself as the play-by-play announcer. Do you prefer one more than the other? And then how do you adjust between the two? The, the, so having done the simulcast for 21 years uh, was, was great for me. And I think the, the audience in Seattle, for the most part, enjoyed it. I, I still have some letters, believe it or not, from the mid-90s, a, a couple of people complaining that I didn't paint enough of a picture for the radio and didn't give the score enough because it was a simulcast. And then I get another couple of letters that you're on TV. You don't need to tell us all this stuff, you know, uh, as a, as, and I keep them as just a, as a reminder of the difference between the two, but with the simulcast, it was, it was, it was difficult, but once you got it, uh, it, it, I think worked for most people. Uh, the Lakers did it years ago with Chick Hearn and it worked in Los Angeles cause they had Chick Hearn. Uh, Al McCoy used to do it uh, a little bit in Phoenix back in the day and Hot Rod Hunley used to do it in Utah as I recall for a spell. So it had been done in the league and there may be a few other points that I've I've missed but uh, the radio is a play-by-play guy's medium and television is an analyst medium and it's an analyst medium because quite clearly we can see what's going on on the floor. We can see that the ball is on the left side of the lane. Uh, we can see that Barkley is on the right side of the court and Kevin Johnson is at the near side and uh, they've got a man in the post. You can see that. So you don't necessarily need to describe that as a play-by-play man. Your analyst can step in and your analyst actually can analyze the play as it is unfolding before you. It doesn't always necessitate the play-by-play guy describing for you, giving you the play-by-play in the play on TV. Now, for me... It's important, though, in crucial situations, uh, you've got to know your, your time, your score, your situation as a, as a player, coach, and as a broadcaster. Because if, you've got, if you're in a tie situation, a one-possession game, five seconds left, ball's coming in bounds, the analyst has to know, I've got to give this moment up to the play-by-play guy to let him describe what has happened. And then the play-by-play guy is going to get out, and I'm going to have all the time I need to run with it. We're going to have multiple replays if you've got a good producer and director, and I'm going to be able to break this all down. But I've got to step back and give the play-by-play guy enough time. So that, that I think, was, is important. I, and I've worked with uh, some great people on TV and on radio, worked with Dr. Jack Ramsey uh, and, and UB Brown and I did a lot of games, and John Barry and I did a lot of games together on ESPN Radio. And those guys were great about making the transition from TV analysts, where they are very good, to the radio side, where they would back off and allow me to be the play-by-play guy, allow the play-by-play guy to paint the picture on radio. That's what's important. So that would be the difference between the two. And in terms of which I prefer most, I, to be honest with you, I'm happy doing either one. Um, I really am. It's just just being in that environment, seeing the stage set, seeing the players the fans, hopefully we'll see them again soon. Coaches, everybody, the way just everything happens in that gym has always been uh, electrifying to me uh, because I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, 
you know, before the internet, before 500 channels. And the entertainment in our town on the west side of Indy was to go to high school basketball on Friday and Saturday nights. I mean, there was nothing better. I mean, you, you live for the weekends to go see, you know, the Ben Davis Giants play on Friday night. And then, and sometimes they'd be at home on a Saturday. A doubleheader at home in your own gym was, to me, was just spectacular. So um, that's why I, you know, I just, I just love be there, just love being there doing the game. And either medium uh, actually is fine with me. Anyway, I can there without having to pay, Dan. Bottom line. <laughs> unless you get the best seat in the house, which uh, get the best seat in the house. Like, yeah. I, I think Michigan and Iowa are two games that I've had radio calls for, and you're up kind of you know fifty rows above, and it's like oh, yeah. man, I had a different assignment this night. But I agree, it, it, you're right there. You're great seats. That's a tremendous breakdown of the difference between the two. Because quite frankly, I don't think enough people understand there is a big difference between both of them and especially yeah. if you're doing a simulcast how to tie them in together that that's that's tremendous what about your time in seattle did you have what what were some of your greatest memories with some of those really good teams with the guys that you mentioned sean kemp and gary payton yeah well, I got there in 87, and this was the year after the Sonics, uh, with a 39-win team, upset the Dallas Mavericks in the first round, beat the Houston Rockets in the second round, and then lost to the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, that was my introduction firsthand to seeing the Sonics in Seattle was, was when I got to town in the uh, – would have been January of 87, uh, with Bernie Bickerstaff as the head coach at that time. And that was an incredible run. And that was a run that actually allowed me to get the job with, with the Sonics because uh, it just electrified the city. It just turned the city on to the Sonics again. You know, this is uh, eight years after they win the championship. And, and, and they were making that difficult transition from older players, obviously Gus, DJ, and, and Jack. You know, the core of that championship team winding down and moving on and Lenny moving on to now trying to rebuild all that. And they just caught fire. And, uh, you know, that was, that was Nate McMillan. Uh, that was Dale Ellis, who to this day is one of the great three-point shooters in the history of the league. People forget what a, just a dynamic three-point shooter he was. Um, Tom Chambers, who's, in my opinion, whose game was ahead of its time, 6'10", could shoot with distance, was rugged, could put it on the deck, attack the rim had a nasty attitude and was cocky as heck and you loved having him on your squad. And then you had Xavier McDaniel, who was just, he was, he was uh, a hard iron pipe. That guy was nails. Six, five out of Wichita state led the nation in rebounding and in scoring and just gave no quarter six, five kind of an undersized four man, but was just made up for it and just guts. And so they had those three guys, and that was the team that I broke in with, uh, with Nate McMillan as a point guard. So, I mean, to me, that was, I look back on my times with the Sonics, that was a heck of a team. Unfortunately, you know, a year later, Tom leaves for free agency, goes to Phoenix, and things kind of unwind a little bit. But that, you know, that opened the door for a couple of trades. Um, and then, of course, Gary Payton coming on board, National Player of the Year out of Oregon State, and then the great Sean Kemp, as we know, uh, uh, what, a, a year later. So, it was it was it was gratifying to be you know around those guys, see them grow, and then obviously you ask for one series of games or or a game, it would have to be 
you know, the Western Conference Finals against the Utah Jazz, Stockton, Malone, the great Jerry Sloan coaching, uh, the Sonics team coming along, uh, surviving as they did after losing in the first round to the Denver Nuggets despite winning 60-plus games. Another great squad, and they lose to the Lakers in the first round the following year and then finally break through to play the 72-win Chicago Bulls uh, in the finals after beating Utah. So that whole year to me was kind of a highlight because, Dan, it's, it's unbelievable, and you've, you've seen this dynamic where a team comes into your building and there, you know there is no way this team is beating you. No way. And, I, and, and that would at, at one year that happened all but three times at home <laughs> I mean, you know, in the regular season. That's incredible at the pro level. And you also knew going on the road, you had a better than 50% chance of going into their building and beating them. Um, so, and the Sonics for five, six years were winning an average of 56 games uh, in that period of time. So that was a, that was a remarkable stretch of games uh, and, and, and years. And, you know, I look back on it, we all kind of took it for granted that you know, it would always be this way until, you, you know, your players get older or guys are traded, things happen, and, and then you slowly see it start to wind down a little bit as it eventually did in Seattle. Well, the other disappointing thing for Seattle, and you probably had a front row seat for it, is the fact that, you know, somebody from the outside, the ownership group in Oklahoma City, came in and, and essentially swooped the team out from underneath uh, the Seattle community. And I don't know how in-depth you want to go as far as possibly being negative towards another group or not, but what was the feeling like when you guys knew that the Sonics were gone? Well, I was one of those uh, never say it's over guys. Uh, right up to the time in July of uh, in the summer of 2008, uh, after, by the way, the, the Sonics drafted Russell Westbrook to team with Kevin Durant, who they had picked as the number two pick the year before, uh, I, I never believed that they were moving. Uh, now, I'll tell you this. When they were sold to Clay Bennett in 2006 by Howard Schultz, I wasn't surprised that they were sold because the rumors were for a couple of years where that Schultz was selling because they had so many owners. That was one of the issues that they had. They had so many people that had a part of the action with the Sonics rather than a close, tight-knit group. And I, I think they had difficulties with their building because so much revenue is derived from the building. And the perception was that even though they had redone the building in 95, that 10 years later, it just, it just wasn't able to generate the kind of revenue that they needed in the modern NBA. That was, that was always going to be an issue. And so that's why Schultz decided to, to sell. But what was surprising is that he sold to an out-of-town group. We all thought that he was going to sell to Microsoft money, uh, that it would, he would sell to Gates or that he would sell to Bomber, who we would see at our games all the time. When he sold to Clay Bennett, uh, the alarm bell immediately rang for everybody because remember Oklahoma city had hosted quite successfully for two years, the new Orleans Hornets who had been displaced by hurricane Katrina and the Sonics had actually gone in and played in Oklahoma city a few times. And it's a pretty good teams. I mean, Chris, uh, Chris Paul was on that squad. Chris Paul was the leader of that team. And, the crowd was phenomenal, and it was a tough building to play in, and Clay Bennett made it abundantly clear to anybody that would listen to him. In fact, we interviewed him on a Sonic broadcast. He made it abundantly clear that he wanted a team for Oklahoma City. 
didn't specify if it was by relocation or by expansion, but he wanted a team for Oklahoma City. And so, you know, we knew that he had done the commissioner and had done the NBA uh, a big favor by, by hosting this displaced team, and they had done very well at the gate. And so when they were sold to Bennett, uh, that's when the, the alarm bell went out. And I, you know, I don't fault Clay for everything in this, in this matter. Uh, he knew what he, he wanted to do. He knew that the building wasn't generating revenue. Uh, he, in a sense, tried to get a building deal done with local, um, local politicians. He went to the state government. He, Stern went down to the state government and was rebuffed. And um, Stern had a huge ego and a thin skin, and he wasn't treated well, uh, apparently, by the folks in Olympia who basically told him, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do it on your own. We, you know, we're, you're, we redid the, the city, redid, helped you rebuild the building in 95. You got a new football facility down there, baseball facility. I remember Clay Bennett saying that they had stadium fatigue. That was one of the reasons that politicians were unable to get it done, stadium fatigue. So anyway, I mean, we could go on and on with this thing, but I, I don't fault necessarily. He doesn't get all the fault. Some of it has to be shared by Howard Schultz, who had to have known. Uh, what the probable outcome was going to be when he sold to Clay Bennett. You know, I, I think uh, fault rests with certainly with state government, with the governor and with the mayor and the city council of Seattle, uh, that they were the last hope uh, that the fans of Seattle had, but they took Bennett to court. And then after five days decided that they uh, apparently came to the conclusion that they were going to lose the lawsuit. And so they took a settlement of 40 million bucks which seems like and is peanuts now, yeah. right? In the world of professional sports and in uh, and in pro professional basketball, um, and I think the feeling at that point was, well, it's such a good market. NBA ball will be back here in three years. And then it was five years, and then now it's been twelve years, and um, ain't going to happen in twenty one. And I'm hopeful it'll happen in the next five years, but uh, it, it was tough because. That's 41 years of history, a number of Hall of Famers, uh, a world championship, um, some great players and names, a wonderful city that, uh, you know, every player in the league uh, who's still around now in the league will tell you it was, uh, a, 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 was a treat to come to and play here before these fans. So we'll see. I'm, I'm optimistic, Dan. Uh, it's just too much, too much basketball history here. There's too many, you know, good young talent talented players coming out of this area too that go on to play. Well, you know, Seattle is way too a basketball city to not have an NBA yeah. team. So I would expect yeah. soon Absolutely. that there's a team back there. So that kind of leads me to, to, to the next question. Do you prefer working for one team, whether it's uh, the Sonics or the Blazers, or do you uh, enjoy being a freelancer like your time with Westwood One, radio, or yeah. radio? Well, they both have their pluses and minuses. I guess, you know, when you're with a team, you are on the team plane, you're in the hotels, you're well taken care of, you're on the bus. There's very little you have to do your, uh, of your own. Uh, I mean, you essentially got to get your suitcase uh, to the baggage handler and then pick it up when you check into the hotel. <laughs> That's it. As a freelancer, as you know, the difference would be um, I, I'm going to line up my own travel. I got to it, get it through a travel agency. Sometimes I got to talk the, the guy or the gal in accounting that I need this flight rather than that flight that's $50 cheaper. You know, little stuff like that you don't even think of. 
Then I'm going to go to the airport by myself. I'm going to get my car by myself. I'm by myself when I get to the hotel. Uh, I will meet a crew that has flown in and work with some people that I may have worked with before, but in all likelihood, I haven't. And then we're going to do a broadcast after meeting with the coaches that morning or that afternoon and maybe a play or two, and then we're going to do a broadcast. So you really got to be on your toes, but it's really rewarding. Uh, and I, I did that, and it was I did 70 events a year for eight years after the Sonics left town in 08. Uh, and and did quite well. Uh, I was you know, I was doing Westwood One Radio, ESPN Radio. Did some ESPN TV, Turner TV. I did I did uh, MLS Soccer for the Sounders. Did a talk show for three years. You know, you just you just do stuff that interests you in the interim. But I I really wanted to get back and do uh, uh, get with a team again. And so uh, I ran into Paul Allen actually at a a playoff game in 16. They were playing the Golden State Warriors. I think it was in the second round. It was that year where they beat the Clippers in the first round when Chris Paul and Blake Griffin got hurt in one game and were out. Blazers took advantage. And then, of course, the Warriors uh, beat him. Uh, I think it was four to one. But uh, Paul Allen came by and, and and I actually met him for the first time. And, you know, he just he asked me, he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd really love to be with a team. Um, you know, I, I really love my 21 years with the Sonics and I'd love to be with a team again, rather than doing all these, uh, events all over the country. And so, uh, about two weeks later, I got a call and said, Hey, we're, we're making a change. And we wondered if you're interested. And I, I said, sure. It can't hurt to talk. And so we did. And, uh, and I was hired. So I, you know, and I had four seasons there with him and I had a, I had a great time doing the broadcast, but just decided that with everything that was going on in June, uh, they picked up the final year of my contract, uh, the extension, but I went to them and I said, look, I don't want to start the season just to drop out because of concerns about these things. I'm just going to right now, I'm stepping out and you guys go do what you have to do. And so, you know, we, we parted professionally and I think they enjoyed the, the job that I did down there. It's a tough market. Uh, you know, to be accepted into, particularly after you're perceived as a Sonic guy, even though I hadn't done the Sonics for eight years, right? There was always that issue. Uh, but, you know, when you, when they, when they finally realize that, Hey, you're emotionally involved in what's going on and you're plugged into what's going on and you're, you know, you're really interested in what's happening with the team. I think then they, they accept you. So eventually they did accept this and heck we won two Emmys for best sports broadcast in the Northwest. So I feel like, you know, we, we did okay. Yeah. You guys, uh, you know, living in the Northwest, I grew up a Blazer fan. I my second team would have been the Sonics. So I listened to you a tons growing yeah. up, but you know, uh, uh, the Blazers broadcasting crew was, was my number one go-to growing up, Bill Shonley, uh, and then yeah. on the TV side were guys that I listened to all, all over sure. the world as a youngster but you had a tremendous partner in Lamar Hurd I, I thought that he yeah. did a really nice job uh, or continues to do a really nice job with the Blazers um, who would have been your favorite broadcast partner over the years because you've worked with quite a few really good ones you know you mentioned Steve Jones I worked with Jones for a couple of years uh, the last two years with the Sonics and I really thoroughly enjoyed working with with Steve um, uh, he would always keep me pumped up over those two years, you know, after the team was sold, he was 
uh, always root me on saying, hang in there. They're going to stay in Seattle. There's no way they're moving out of Seattle. <laughs> you know, it was funny. Uh, you know, Marcus Johnson, working with Marcus was uh, just an absolute treat. Funny guy, really plugged in. Uh, knows the game extremely well. Has a great interest in the players and coaches and so forth. And really worked hard at it, too. Would go to practices and workouts and so forth and hang out. And um, I just, I really enjoy working with him. I worked with Wally Walker for a couple of years. It was fun working with Wally uh, because he had that uh, that understanding of the game as well. I mean, a real nice knack for uh, identifying players or plays on the floor and, and really zeroing in and getting into the X's and O's and so forth. So I enjoyed working with him. Uh, working with UB Brown on radio was always a treat. And working with uh, Jack Ramsey was, uh, you know, I mean, you're – you're talking about basketball royalty when you talk about those two guys and just to be, you know, in the room with them when you're interviewing, say, a guy like Greg Popovich, uh, you talk about pressure, you know. I remember, so, you know, you kind of know these coaches a little bit, and I know Pop, and he's, you know, he's irascible, but I, if, you can, if you can get him to talk about something other than basketball, I think that's the way you – you, you, you do a proper interview with, with, with Pop. So we'd go in there, we'd talk about anything other than basketball politics or trends or something in society. Then we'd turn to our basketball interview, and that's when he would flip a switch and he'd become Greg Popovich again. And he just, he was a monster to interview, <laughs> you know, but in his coach's room. So you'd be sitting in there with a producer, with Yubi Brown, a recorder, and with Greg Popovich. And I've got all my questions there on paper and, all, and of course he always wants to see them beforehand let me see those you know you always want to grab me that's not a good question that's dumb that's stupid you know that kind of thing <laughs> oh that's pretty good I, I don't but you didn't make that up did you somebody gave you that you gave you that question didn't so, something like that but his office dan is is there's nothing in it you got a lamp on a desk he's got these old dog-eared note cards index cards He's got his plays on his cards, on his dog-eared index cards. No high-tech iPad, Surface computer, nothing. Cards in the middle of his desk. Behind him is a framed picture, not signed, but a framed oil picture of John Havlicek. That's it. He's got nothing else in his office. In fact, we had to roll in a couple of chairs. <laughs> his chair, one chair, we had to roll in a couple of chairs. That's all he's got in his office. It was, it was amazing. And then you you proceed to do your interview with UB Brown sitting there or or Jack Ramsey. And he'd look over at him and they're just laughing at me. You know, like good good luck, kid. Good luck getting anything out of this guy. But that, you know, that's just an example of uh what we would do before on ESPN radio broadcast um with these guys. And, you know, I I just can't say enough about them. Uh Jack Ramsey did a, we did a playoff series in Dallas. This goes back to I think it was their championship year in eleven. And um, Jack had a brain, he's 81 or two at this time. He's got a brain tumor and he does the playoffs. It, I mean, it was the most remarkable thing and didn't miss a beat and never complained once about it, uh, about what was, what was going on. He's taking radiation, taking other medications, taking this experimental medication, Never said a thing about it. Uh, just can't say it. You know, he just, he really set an example and a tone. And you could see how he would be such a successful head coach in the NBA, just the toughness of it that he exuded. 
I had a chance to meet uh, Dr. Ramsey when I was a player with the Blazers. He was in town to do an NBA uh, game on ESPN radio. Uh, because I grew up in Portland, uh, I made sure I went over and said hello. And uh, you're right, he's NBA royalty. He's basketball royalty. Uh, that story, amongst the others that you told today, were phenomenal, Kevin. I appreciate those stories. I appreciate your insight. I wish you nothing but the best of luck as, uh, as you stay healthy and, and safe in Chelan. And uh, hopefully at some point our paths will cross in our broadcasting career. So thanks again for joining. Thanks, Dan. Good luck with the podcast and have a great season. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.